0: You had to go in hospital. Twice, sir. It says here on your record from overseas that you had headaches and that you had crying spells.
1: Yes, sir. I believe in your profession it's called nostalgia.
0: In other words, homesickness. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm.
1: It was induced when shortly before the war, I received a picture of my sweetheart.
0: Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Rolain. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 14 now, and it is Erica's choice this time, so let's see what she has in store for us.
0: I've chosen Let There Be Light from 1946, and this was produced and directed by John Houston for the U.S. Army when he was a member of the U.S. Army Signal Corps, and this was the final entry in a trilogy of films commissioned by the U.S. government. And in Let There Be Light, we follow 75 U.S. soldiers who have sustained debilitating emotional trauma and depression and we followed their entry into a psychiatric hospital, their treatment, and eventual recovery. And John Huston also wrote this film with an uncredited assist by Charles Kaufman, and also uncredited is the narration by his father, Walter Huston.
1: Which was an immediate hook for me, because you know this. I'm a huge fan of Walter Huston. The Devil in Daniel Webster is probably in my top 10 favorite films of all time. And we will get to that in an episode eventually, but immediately hearing that voice, I'm sold.
0: And I think the rest of America, or at least a huge portion of America would have felt exactly the same way. He has such a comforting authoritarian, but warm presence, which I think you feel very much in this narration. This film though was actually censored, banned and actually reshot at the time by the US Army, so it was not available to be seen by the general public. And when John Houston attempted to have a viewing at the Museum of Modern Art, some MPs showed up and pulled the print. Hmm. So it was not seen until nineteen eighty one.
1: Which leads me to ask, how did you see it the first time?
0: I was really lucky enough to see this when I was in film school. And actually, let me qualify that a little bit. I went to film classes. I had intended to become a director, which up to that point in my late 20s was had been a lifelong dream for me. But when I got there, I decided pretty quickly, this is no longer what I really want to do with my life. But I spent an entire semester In film history, documentary, and other short subjects, which was a really fantastic education. So I got a wonderful amount of learning into a short amount
1: of time. And this was one of the things you saw?
0: Yes, I saw this in my documentary class. This, along with many other films, and spoiler alert, not for this movie, the recommendation I have later also came from this class. Okay. So I actually got to see this on the big screen, which was a huge treat.
1: Aside from the size of it when it was projected, what was it about it that made such a big impression upon you that you would choose it to be the first documentary that we talk about on the show?
0: There are a couple key scenes in this film that were so striking at the time. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and yet it's so believable. And I'll get to some particulars of that later on. It will open up some debate about features of this film, how it was made, why it was made, so on and so forth. But to me, it was so striking and unbelievably heartbreaking. I have no experience in war, so I cannot relate to what these people had gone through. But watching their struggle and their treatment and trying to imagine the lifelong effects of what they went through in World War II was so poignant that I felt that I was there with them. I think that's a testament to John Houston as a filmmaker and also the simple heartbreak of watching my neighbors, young men, kids some of them, experiencing the horror of war and how it changed them. And when we watched this for the show, this was now the third time that I've seen it, the second time for you. Right. And so do you remember what you felt when I first brought this to
1: you? This is one of those that I discovered thanks to you. This was part of a monthly screening series that we do, and we've sort of established this loose tradition where on your birthday, you put together a really interesting program of shorts, mostly documentary.
0: Because I'm a big documentary fan.
1: And so you introduced this film to me, and I was just floored by it because of the things you mentioned. How it seemed to me that Houston had what seemed like unprecedented access to these soldiers at a point in their lives that were so fragile, and it seemed like a parade of images that the government would not want you to see. To me, it comes across as distinctly anti-war, at least a cautionary tale, even though the ending is a little rah-rah, look Mm -hmm. how we've put these men back on the road to recovery. Every image from the beginning right up until the very end really puts across how harrowing the experiences are that they went through and how completely broken they are in a number of different ways. Because it literally begins, the film, with Walter Houston calling these men human salvage. They're wreckage. They're not even full human beings anymore.
0: Casualties of the spirit is also another line. And John Houston actually famously said, if I ever make a film that's pro-war, take me out and shoot me. And when I showed this film for our movie night, I tried to give as little detail as possible. Because I really felt I would be doing a disservice to you and the rest of our audience if I said too much. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't go into it really kind of not expecting what you were about to see. Does that seem... Is that what you recall?
1: That is what I recall. And so now let's go into great detail and talk about it for anyone (laughs) that we might... Interest in tracking the film down.
0: I really hope people grab this one. It's amazing. Have you ever seen anything like this? No. Have you ever seen this kind of population represented in this realistic fashion?
1: I haven't seen anything similar to this. There's one thing that I am still waiting to see because Austin Film Society is going to bring it. The Titty Cut Follies by Frederick Wiseman. Okay, okay is probably the first thing it makes me think of. I still haven't seen it yet, but based on everything I've read about it, I assume I'm going to have a similar feeling. But up until the point that you showed this to me, no. And it's funny because it's such a literally ancient problem. As long as there have been human beings, there have been people who have been traumatized by the horrors of combat. And even with thousands of years of trying to figure out this problem... Watching the psychiatrist in this, it seems so rudimentary and like we are at almost square one. Even with 70 years of hindsight, going back and watching the treatment just makes me think of the history of medicine and all of the wrong guesses and blind alleys and the trial and error that it takes to get to something that's even slightly helpful.
0: Let's start from the beginning. Okay. So we we start first with the opening scroll, which says that no scenes in this film were staged, yet there are certainly multiple camera angles. John Huston shot over 70 hours of film. He had multiple cameras running constantly. There is effective lighting in this. And then, of course, the post-production elements, there is a score that is at times joyful and ominous and heartbreaking and sorrowful. And so there are elements in this that feel plotted at the same time. Some things that feel this is a little bit too convenient that this is happening. Are we speeding up this treatment process or have we moved scenes around? Um, What did you think?
1: Every documentary has an agenda. There is no such thing as a film that's not specifically engineered to make a certain point. The thing about this that makes this so remarkable is, to me, Houston was right under the nose of the armed forces crafting this thing that was contrary to the message that he had been drafted to create. But yes, there does seem like there is compression of timeline, because we obviously can't follow eight weeks of treatment with 75 men. But I think choosing the soldiers that he did, he still covered a wide variety of ailments and issues that they were dealing with. The nostalgia, like the gentleman in the scene that we reenacted in the beginning talks about crying spells, stutters, insomnia.
0: Paralysis.
1: Amnesia. Psychosomatic paralysis. Mm-hmm. Not actual nerve damage. Right. And just general anxiety. So... I think the choices he made were very effective. And
0: choices were made. Absolutely. At the very least. Mm -hmm.
1: They certainly were. Because it shows up in the cross section of soldiers that he chooses. Not just the ailments that they have, but socioeconomic status and their family backgrounds. There's a real melting pot of characters that you get to interact with.
0: And we also see the races being mixed in this treatment facility as well. But the military wasn't actually desegregated until 1948. So that was a pretty powerful statement to make on film as well.
1: Interesting. And I think he even carries it farther than that. Because at the very end, when you have the soldier that we reference in the opening scene with the sweetheart that he mentioned before he has the emotional breakdown, we actually see them kiss at a time when it was still somewhat taboo to see black characters on screen demonstrating affection to one another.
0: And that's the only element that I could remember of physical warmth that mm-hmm. really happens between two people who obviously already knew each other.
1: So again, I think Houston is being at least a little subversive in the choices that he's making with that particular scene.
0: Now, in his autobiography, John Houston says that this was, in fact, a staged documentary, that he built sets around what was happening in this real facility, but that through the element of just having all of these multiple cameras available at all times, he didn't have to actually write anything, and I think that that is borne out by The simple statements that these guys make that I could never in a million years put those words into their mouths. It feels so true.
1: It does. That makes me specifically think of my favorite character, Griffith, the one I sympathize the most with, even empathize the most with, the soldier who is talking about his sweetheart and can't keep from crying, him versus a lot of the other soldiers They seem like wide-eyed kids. Yes. Very naive. he looks
0: older, actually, a little bit to me.
1: He has a self-possession that's different from them, it seems like. They're not the most articulate bunch, the rest of them, in some cases. They are the guys that would often not very charitably be referred to as cannon fodder Mm -hmm. in some eras. Kids that might not have many options coming out of high school had they not been drafted. Obviously, these kids were drafted. But Griffith's self-awareness was what made his story even more heartbreaking to me. If not caught up in the gears of war, it's easy for me to see him as a successful, prosperous guy, quietly noble, a good husband, a good father, a solid citizen, even heroic if necessary. Whereas the rest of them didn't strike me as having such bright futures necessarily.
0: It makes me feel his struggle so much more keenly that he is trying to grasp what is happening mm-hmm. and still retain that sense of self-possession, but in the face of these forces that have been inflicted upon him.
1: He seems like the only one who, prior to the war, would have been emotionally and intellectually equipped to deal with these questions out of the batch of soldiers that we see.
0: and his speech in particular, his speech, the, the scene... Of his intake, essentially. I cannot imagine another person having scripted that, can you? No,
1: no, that is straight from his heart, it seems like to me.
0: This question of the film being staged or not staged, it seems as though there are elements that have been compressed, time has been compressed... It's possible that the ending is a little bit too pat. There's the use of the score that I mentioned. At the same time, this still feels true to me.
1: You're right. I agree. It was manufactured somewhat, again, not in the way the army meant it to. I think there's an undercurrent in it that actually gets the point across that he's trying to convey. But... I don't think it hurts it in the long run because the elements that it's manufactured from are very real elements. So out of the elements that the film is assembled from, are there any in particular that stand out to you?
0: Let's start first with this intake process that okay. we had mentioned when we see Griffith. And Griffith really stood out for me, as I know he did for right. you. And it only becomes more profound later on when we build on what we know of him. Mm-hmm. But we first see him in this intake process, he and a number of other soldiers, and each one is meeting with a separate psychiatrist and just talking about the basics of where they had served, how they came to be here, what they were feeling, sometimes an initial incident that set off this emotional trauma. And each of these soldiers reflects a different piece of this what was known as psychoneurosis at the time. And actually the working title of the film, which thankfully John Houston scrapped, was The Returning Psychoneurotics.
1: <laughs> Not a stigma attached to that.
0: No. And so each soldier as we had mentioned has something a little bit different going on. There's a profound stutterer. There's a person who can't really speak up. There is Griffith who is having the crying spells. There's another soldier who, to me, it looks as though he's still clearly hearing the bombers overhead Mm -hmm. and looking for them, trying to track them. There's another fellow who talks about seeing his best friend die, which I imagine was a pretty common experience as well. And this is our first glimpse as well into the beginning of the psychiatric process at this time. So they're starting with this initial counseling and talk therapy. And what struck me is that each person is being treated with dignity and respect. The psychiatrists are often telling these guys, it's okay to show emotion. It's okay that this is happening. You're in a safe place right now, essentially. What did you think when you were watching the intake?
1: I was torn a little bit, and I felt this way throughout the film about the army psychiatrists. And I had a couple of questions About whether or not it might have been effective to do something just slightly different. You were right. Each person is treated with dignity as far as we see on screen. But underneath the whole thing for me was this feeling of this is almost like a psychiatric mash unit where we're going to do some rudimentary techniques, some triage. We're going to get these guys back up on their emotional feet so we can get them out of here and back into the world as somewhat productive citizens. So we can get to the next batch of 75 who invariably are coming.
0: And this opens for me a conversation I wanted to have about psychiatry in the military, in essence, which, of course, we're not going to be able to have an exhaustive discussion. And I've done some research, but I'm not an expert in this. And so in what I was reading, there was this interesting to me concept of the screening process which was very much evident in World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, in which Army-trained psychiatrists had set about to eliminate the people from the draft service that they thought would be more susceptible to these mental traumas. Oh, okay.
1: So if they felt you were predisposed, they remove you from the pool before you even got there.
0: Absolutely. So they were trying to do this preventative medicine which didn't
1: work. No, I can't imagine that it would because there is no way to screen for how a human being is going to react under indescribable stress and horror. It seems impossible to simulate any sort of condition that will accurately reflect what might happen to you.
0: And the numbers were so large of the people that they let in to the service who did develop these psychoneurotic symptoms, that it was clear that the screening process just really could not work because of these heretofore unimaginable events. No one knew going into World War I what that would be like. On the soldiers, that was warfare that hadn't been seen before. Right. And the same story again and again and again. But they did keep doing the screening process. So that was element one. And then element two was that they tried what was called forward psychiatry. So they would have psychiatrists near the front lines for that very thing that you were talking about. So you develop some kind of battle neurosis, you're pulled from active service, but you're very close to your same battalion, you get treated for a few days and get thrown back in to active duty. So that's all happening within the arena of war. And... With World War Two, they pulled back from that quite a bit. And so that's why you see these servicemen actually coming back to the U.S. Right. To get okay. this treatment. And then so that leads to this third element, which is actually treating them after they've been pulled from battle and trying ultimately to get them reintegrated into society. That's the ultimate goal, making them fit for civilian life.
1: So we're seeing one-on-one treatment at this point, but still only using the very basic tools of, hypnosis, rudimentary psychotherapy.
0: Drugs. We see sodium amytal That plays a role.
1: That's interesting because I was thinking about the tools in the psychiatrist's toolbox and realized after doing some research, things like Thorazine and other first-generation antipsychotics were not available until the late 50s, early 60s. The same with the most effective antidepressants which might have been used to treat those cases now.
0: And another thing that we see is occupational therapy.
1: That is one of the more interesting segments in the movie to me because it raised the question about the integration back into society and watching these guys express these fears of just not getting a fair shake from someone. The stigma that's clearly attached to them as returning with nervous disorders How that's going to play out for them when they have to present that to a prospective employer. And I was thinking about, is their optimism naive? Thinking about the culture in the 40s and how it is even now, 70 years later, where even though we've made significant advances, it still seems really difficult sometimes to find a place for someone who suffers from that in the general workforce,
0: and I have a perception about this, and tell me what yours is. Okay. Now, from what I read and understand, this chronic PTSD, as we now essentially right. ca-
1: call it. I, I'm really interested in the evolution of the phrase, actually, because since we were talking about World War One, how it's gone from shell shock to combat fatigue, battle fatigue, battle stress reaction all the way up to now what we know is PTSD, mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Yes. And this chronic nature of that isn't always so easy to treat, we know. Or even we know observe. This. Absolutely. And so my perception is that I think that the world has changed to become more accepting of this because it's just simply sheer numbers at this point. So many people co- have come back. Now, Walter Houston's narration for this film says 20% of our army casualties suffered psychoneurotic symptoms. And then fast forwarding decades ahead, there was an article that I read that said by the end of last year, which was 2011 at this point, the VA had served almost 212,000 PTSD victims back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And doctors agree that an equal number may never bother to seek treatment approximately 48% of Iraq-Afghanistan soldiers who sought VA care between 2002 and 2009 were diagnosed with some form of mental health issue. Hmm. So the U.S. is faced with these sheer numbers of all of these folks who have been damaged. So it's my perception that the world has changed and become more accepting. But in the last few years, I've actually gotten to know a lot more returning Iraq young vets, kids in their 20s. And when I've talked to them, when they've shared their experience, they talk about having a lot of trouble seeking care for these sort of mental health issues and the stigma attached to that within the army, within the military. So while I feel that the world has changed, it doesn't seem to me that the military has changed. And you had mentioned that specific scene where one of the soldiers is talking about wanting a fair shake. Mm -hmm. So do you think that he could essentially have gotten it in the mid to late 40s at that point?
1: I think so, surprisingly, to me in retrospect. After having done a little research, I think we may not be giving society in general the credit for being as accepting and flexible that we should. I was looking at some statistics, and economic life in general was better for World War II vets than any since, but even going all the way through Vietnam, I found some interesting statistics. Because it was the last time post-World War II that the general public was so unified in support of a military action. It wasn't controversial. It was obviously viewed by the general public as necessity. That positive sentiment toward those veterans, combined with the GI Bill, made it so that by 1965, the average income for a vet was $5,100 versus $3,200 for a civilian. The unemployment rate for veterans was half of that of the civilian population, and veterans' children were more likely to attend college. Up to half of World War II discharges were said to be related to or the result of combat exhaustion. So a huge segment of those returning soldiers were suffering with that in some way. And yet these statistics seem to indicate to me that they at least were received with a lot more open arms than we thought they might've been when I was initially watching this the first time.
0: So that begs the question for me, would the audience, if they had actually had the opportunity to see this, would they have received that education that John Houston so wished that they would from this Hmm. film and that, acceptance that they would have been open to this subject matter
1: even more so than it seems they were i guess in retrospect i can't imagine that had this film been distributed in 1946 and made it into theaters and thousands of people got to see it that it would have had any detrimental effect to any of the returning soldiers only a detrimental effect to the idea of joining the military maybe
0: So the army, as I had mentioned, pulled this film. There are a number of views to take on that. What they said was that it was too much of an invasion of privacy to the specific soldiers Hmm. profiled in the film. Even though John Huston got waivers from every single person, those waivers eventually disappeared, by Hmm. the way. (laughs) So the army said too much of an invasion of privacy, too detrimental to them trying to reintegrate into society.
1: Mm, yeah, that's that's dodgy to me. If anything, it was detrimental to recruitment.
0: Absolutely. And John Huston had said that he really felt that they pulled it because he was attacking the warrior myth mm-hmm. that you can't walk out of this film and think every person is invincible in the face of these things that many of them saw. And after listening to the statistics that you pulled and the ones that I had read, I think back to a discussion that we had had many episodes ago about the viewing habits of the American film going public. Mm -hmm. And so in 1946, a greater percentage of Americans went to the movie than in any year before or since, which would have been the year that this film came out. And you have to think about, well, okay, would they have been receptive to this? What would the psychological implications have been? And I think back to a film that came out shortly after this in 1947, which is The Best Years of Our Lives, Mm, which is essentially attacking this warrior myth, even though in the same way to me as Let There Be Light, there are these very hopeful elements. It ends on this swell of goodwill and americana but that's not what you're left with and that's not what you're left with in the best years of our lives i remember dana andrews waking up in a cold sweat right. hearing bombers overhead and i think you are left with as the viewer with these darker sadder elements
1: if you're paying attention most certainly so we talked about the intake and we talked a little bit about the occupational therapy and all of the socioeconomic aspects of that, what other elements of the film do you find compelling?
0: I think about a couple of specific scenes or feelings, actually. And one of those that always kind of makes me laugh a little bit, there's a baseball game Mm -hmm. because we're Americans. Of course. We have to have some recreation that's going to fill our souls again, and that's the one that we're going to choose. And I think back to that specific occupational therapy scene again, and Walter Houston talks about building rather than destroying. And this scripted narration is so evocative. There were so many lines that had stayed with me, and I made notes of them this time. And some of those include, how does a man find happiness? What other film of this period makes you think of something so simply profound?
1: especially juxtaposed with images of men who may never find it again. Literally, human beings, not fictional characters. Actual men who are going to have to struggle with that question every day from now on.
0: And I think about one of those men in particular. This was the scene that stood out to me the first time I saw it, and I remembered it over the span of a decade until I showed it to you. Mm -hmm. And that's the scene that I'm not going to get into a ton of detail, but the utterances that come from this guy, these spontaneous utterances, that he's overjoyed at this point to find that he actually has a voice. It, it's it's choking me up a little bit just talking about it right now.
1: Do you want to go into greater detail about that or do you want to leave that as a discovery for the people who go find the movie?
0: I want to leave it as a as a discovery, but I'll give you a little bit, and it's the scene where the man who couldn't speak clearly is able to speak, and part of what he says is, oh, God, listen, I can talk, and I'll just leave it there. But it's a scene that stayed with me over the span of almost 20 years at this point.
1: One of the things that stuck out to me as we were watching these scenes of therapy, especially during the occupational therapy sections, these are sessions where they're talking in a large group setting about how they feel, how far they've come, where they want to go, And I feel a slight undercurrent of distrust sometimes, a little pushback from the soldiers against the psychiatrists. And it made me think about the notion of why didn't they use civilian psychiatrists? Because it seems to me using an army psychiatrist just from the uniform aspect alone might be more of an impediment to therapy because these young men are having to unburden themselves and be honest with men who are dressed similarly to and working for the men who sent them away to these places in which they developed these neuroses in the first place. So why not bring in civilian psychiatrists to help with the therapy back to civilian life rather than the army psychiatrists?
0: I will say, I think in simplest terms, there were just so many more of them. There are so many more army-trained psychiatrists than there were civilian psychiatrists available at the time. I suppose The number skyrocketed, actually. So I think that that's a small part of it. Mm -hmm. I have a slightly different reading of that scene that you're talking about. There were other things that I thought of, one of which was, again, in sort of a a simpler term that I think people in a group find it more difficult to open up than they do one-on-one. Also, it seemed to me a little bit, they were a little bit more distrustful of this specific psychiatrist because he was a little bit more effete.
1: Oh, you think so? It was the specific man rather than the I That's the first
0: thing that occurred to me, but maybe I'm just oversimplifying it. No,
1: it could be. I mean, your reaction is just as viable and valid as any one of the men sitting in that room in terms of how you interpret this person and what he represents and what he's trying to say. I see that.
0: And that actually leads me to something else I was thinking about. Now, I had alluded at the very beginning of the podcast to the fact that this film was actually remade by the U.S. Army. And it's called Shades of Grey. And so they set out to whitewash, literally and figuratively, let there be light. They eliminated any other racial element from the film. So all the soldiers were now portrayed by actors who were all white, every single one of them. And in reading a little bit about Shades of Grey, they definitely changed the thrust in the narration to effectively say that this sort of mental neurosis is really prevalent in the entire U.S. population. So essentially, it's not something caused by the army and Mm. not something caused by war.
1: So they reconditioned it to be the propaganda they hoped that Houston would make in the first place before they got this slightly subversive take that he made.
0: I think so. And John Houston had said, again, that he felt that the army was uh, so distrustful of this because it eliminated that concept of the warrior myth. And he also said that that was essentially saying that our American soldiers went to war and came back all the stronger for the experience, standing tall and proud for having served their country well. Only a few weaklings fell by the wayside. Everyone was a hero and had medals and ribbons to prove it. They might die or they might be wounded, but their spirits remained unbroken, which is not what you feel when you watch this film.
1: (laughs) nothing could be further from what you feel when you watch this film. It is not surprising that the government went to such lengths to undo everything that Houston did and basically make sure no one saw this film until 2010, I guess, when the Library of Congress put it on the National Film Registry and the government could not effectively shelve it anymore they had to deal with it which I'm glad they did because now this film in addition to a handful of others was just released by Olive Films back on January 19th there's a new edition called Let There Be Light John Huston's wartime documentaries that includes this Winning Your Wings Report from the Aleutians and San Pietro That is available in a beautiful new Blu-ray presentation so that we can all watch them whenever we want.
0: And the trilogy that I had talked about before, that includes Report from the Aleutians and the Battle of San Pietro. Winning Your Wings was the first one that he had done. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is in that one. And then the other three were put together. And I have seen the Battle of San Pietro. And it is as harrowing as everyone has said. And it was also pulled.
1: I have not seen it. That Blu-ray should be on our doorstep this week, though, so I'm very excited. Because in addition to all of that, it also includes the whitewashed version that we were talking about. So I'm curious to watch them side by side and see how significant those differences are.
0: Now, also, just as an aside, because I haven't seen this in a while, and hopefully we'll be able to explore this ourselves when we watch it together, but there are reports that the Battle of San Pietro, that he also staged specific elements of that, too. So it will be very interesting. But even so, it's traumatizing to watch.
1: Did you see that in the class? that you I were- did,
0: Yes. And we've now gone through the intake and the practical therapy with these guys. And we're ready to see some of them complete this treatment and be released back into civilian life. So we're now essentially at the end of the film. And it pulls out all the stops for the guys waving from the bus in their uniform. They get the big military send-off, actually. And everyone smiles, and you still see some of the other soldiers in their robes waving to their fellow soldiers who are going off into the sunset, as it were. Mm -hmm. And that feels that we're being told they've been cured, even though the film narration says they haven't. They're going to have to require this ongoing treatment.
1: That felt to me like one of those concessions Houston made So that censors or any board that might be reviewing this would see and feel like, oh, this achieved everything we wanted to, if they weren't hip to what he was doing the rest of the entire time. It is somewhat of a false note, yes, but it feels to me like the necessary thing he had to do to sneak all of the rest of those messages in prior to that.
0: And for me, it ultimately doesn't undercut the rest of the film. No, So what is this film then? We've talked about that Houston said it was a staged documentary, though in the narration itself, it claims to have nothing staged. It was produced essentially as a piece of propaganda. So what is it? Is it truth? Is it documentary truth? Is it propaganda? Is it cinema verite? Is it direct cinema? What is it?
1: It feels like a hybrid, somewhat. Not so much to the far end of the spectrum, say, like something, like F for Fake, for instance, which is essentially a video essay rather than a documentary itself. Like we said before, there are so many elements of it that are grounded in the absolute truth that it just feels like a minor manipulation of a storyline to make us best understand what needs to be taken from observing these men.
0: This leads me to something else I read. I think this encapsulates that sense that the film resists these easy judgments. Mm -hmm. And I will provide a link to this article as well. In the end, this is a movie best understood as an artifact of that brief post-war moment when Hollywood wrestled with the truth. When the urge to cosmetize was, for an ever so brief moment, automatically questioned and even resisted. This is post-war period. This is when we start to see the rise of noir, Mm -hmm. when we definitely questioned what we had been told about these war experiences. This leads directly into direct cinema that would come a bit later, pioneered by people like the Maisels. So it's a forerunner to these pieces of documentary that many of us are familiar with now, that we take as the truth, Mm -hmm. essentially. But I actually, it made me think of something that you watched recently, which was The Wolf Pack. And we had a discussion mm, right. about documentary Which honesty. I hated. Yes. And intellectual honesty. Mm-hmm. And does this film fall into any of those categories?
1: I don't have the same aversion to this type of manipulation that I see in Let There Be Light because even if not in quotes the truth, it still serves the truth. Whereas something like the Wolf Pack to me felt like a complete fiction. But it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that brief window in that quote of the first time we were really taking an unflinching look at some of these things. And that window closed almost immediately because when you look at the filmmaking in the 50s, in the Eisenhower era, all of those things, with the exception of a handful of people like you mentioned, the Maisels brothers and other documentarians, I don't see that sort of thing in fiction films again until maybe the late 60s, early 70s. It takes almost 30 years, minus one or two things like Bigger Than Life, you know, a handful of films that were really cutting against the grain. But you didn't see that sort of emotional honesty again for a long, long time after they closed that window. Which is why documentaries in my opinion are so hugely important. They are often in the vanguard when it comes to dealing with frankly, and the most honestly with whatever the issue is that they're focused on. And then you eventually see that trickle into more mainstream outlets. The thing is, I know there are a ton of people that just don't do documentaries. The same way there are strata of filmgoers that don't watch anything with subtitles, that don't watch silent films. They have these huge blocks of cinema that they have just decided that's not for me and I'm going to avoid it in whatever form. So what do you say to someone to introduce them to the idea that this is a form that's extremely valuable? How do you convince a non-documentary person to start exploring this stuff?
0: Well, let me answer that by explaining how I got into okay. watching documentaries. And I started very young, and I think the first thing I can think of is is watching PBS from such a young age. Mr. Rogers went to the music store. Mm -hmm. I got to see real stories happening that illuminated larger truths for me, which I couldn't put my finger on at that age, but I started to understand that as I got older.
1: No, we were both PBS kids, I think. We were both raised with that stuff, and so that was my way in. Also, I was having an interesting conversation with some of our friends on Twitter... Kester Smith and Jeff Duncanson in particular were talking with me about how they got into documentaries and Kester made a point about how he came from a very working class background and his folks were either working poor themselves or working alongside the working poor. So the things that made the biggest impact on him early on were Harlan County USA and Roger and me. So the thing that got him into it was something that spoke directly to his situation.
0: I also have a more lighthearted example. I remember vividly in elementary school, in PE class, I must have been in second or third grade at this point, and we watched the most awesome documentary on Pele.
1: Pele's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I was hooked.
1: And you're not a big sports person.
0: I am not a sports person. I'm not a soccer person, even less so than a sports person. And Pele is the coolest. (laughs) So this documentary showed me, and I was hooked at that point.
1: So even something you don't necessarily think you are going to be into, if presented the right way, can be arresting.
0: And just a window on these other experiences and people and stories That you didn't know anything about and are hungry for more
1: afterwards. So do you think devices like the staged documentary, for instance, another of my favorites, something like The Thin Blue Line, has a lot of reenactment in it. Do you think adding in these faux fictional elements, is that a bridge for people to come across to the documentary side? Does that help?
0: I think so. And I think it helps to have an inquisitive mind. And to also question what you are watching. We should have this discussion like we have with Let There Be Light. Mm -hmm. What is real and what is not real? Are we telling the whole truth to tell a bigger truth and so on? I mean, there are these questions. I also think about these two other big pieces that I was enthralled with when I was a kid. One being All the President's Men and the second being Helter Skelter, which we have talked about on the show before. And so you see a fiction film made from a true thing I think that might get people excited to then go discover the story behind the story
1: which I think is a perfect place to get into our recommendations today because I think each one of us has something that might be that thing that helps someone get into documentaries so what do you have for us
0: I've got another film that I saw in this film school period, and that is 1960s Primary, which is an example of direct cinema. And so this is a documentary about the 1960 Wisconsin primary election between John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey for the Democratic Party nomination. It was produced by Robert Drew, shot by Richard Leacock and Albert Maisels, and then edited by D.A. Pennebaker, so you've got the cream of the crop with these guys at the earliest part of their uh, careers, and it's considered a breakthrough in documentary film style, and when you see it, you'll understand why, and that's all I'm going to say.
1: I can't wait to see it, because Criterion is releasing all of those Robert Drew and Associates films in a nice collected edition at the end of April.
0: So my recommendation is primary from 1960, and what do you have?
1: My recommendation is following this theme of unprecedented access to your subject, and I am going to recommend Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams, From 2010. In 2010, he was allowed very restricted access to the Chauvet caves in southern France where they had discovered quite possibly, at least as far as we know now, the oldest existing cave paintings in the world. Approximately 32,000 years old. The French Minister of Culture granted Herzog and his very small team special permission to go in and film. And it is fascinating. In Herzog's inimitable way, he ponders the questions that no one else might think to ask about what it means to create art 32,000 years ago, and also the people that are studying the art now. In the same way he does that fantastic miniature monologue about the insane penguin. I
0: was just going to say that. in
1: Encounters at the End of the World, he probes this eons of art in ways that you might not think to do. and it is really interesting and beautiful and I highly recommend it. And I guess that brings us to the end of another episode, our first documentary in the books. probably not the last. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at magiclanternpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. you can just search Magic Lantern Podcast there and you'll find us. We are on Twitter. At lantern underscore cast, and thanks again to Kester and Jeff for participating in the documentary discussion with me, and thanks to Grindhouse Dave, as always, for tweeting about the show. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, and if you would leave us a review there, we would certainly appreciate it. We had a really nice review from Jordan Gish in the past week or so, and we certainly appreciate it. He said some very nice things. Thanks, Jordan. And if you would like to find all of our other episodes, including supplemental material, you can go to our website at magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.